In May 2010, when Apple was gearing up for the worldwide launch of the iPad, the company became caught up in a scandal over outsourcing. The pristine packaging around the new gizmos screamed designed in California. But it suddenly became clear just how much the Cupertino computer maker relied on China for production. A spate of suicides among employees of Foxconn, an Apple supplier, triggered protests and demands for a boycott. It's not clear that the death toll among Foxconn workers in Shenzhen was any higher than that of the general population in China, but the dent in Apple's brushed aluminium sheen remained. It looked a little less like an all-American success story. The endless outsourcing had to stop. When Apple started production of the -the top-of-the-range Mac Pro in 2012, it moved assembly to Texas. It soon hit a snag. In China, Apple could turn to any number of factories to produce tiny custom screws. Texas had almost none. Apple had to import the screws from China. And in 2019, Mac Pro production shifted back there. How will Joe Biden change America's supply chain saga? This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prado, The Economist's US editor. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, should American industry be more self-reliant? A container ship stuck in the Suez Canal, tensions with China, and the vaccine race have combined to make America's supply chains look vulnerable. President Biden has ordered a security review, and his new infrastructure plan includes measures to protect supply chains. What are the political implications of this new mantra of resilience? With me, as ever, to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief, and John Fasman, the US digital editor. Charlotte, you're not in New York this week. You're on holiday in South Carolina, but you love supply chains so much that you're <laughs> joining us from your vacation to, to talk about them. How's it going? My mother-in-law has a line, which is that when you take your children on holiday, it's not vacation, it's a trip, um, which feels apt. But we're having a nice time. We saw some alligators. We're getting our money's worth. It's the full South Carolina experience. And John, you're also on the road, though you're working. What's what's going on your end? Well, I'm in St. Louis reporting a couple of stories that uh, that I hope you'll hear later. When you put your kids, when you do a road trip with your kids, after you click them into their car seats in the back seat and you walk around to get into the front seat, that's your vacation. The rest of the trip, <laughs> you get one little vacation when you walk around the car. <laughs> It's a 12-hour drive, so oh we realized, you know, at first it, you think that the person who's driving is doing the hard work, and then you realize that it's the person in the passenger seat who has a much heavier <laughs> lift. So I took over driving somewhere around Virginia and uh, felt much more calm. Well, Joe Biden's also been on the road this week. He was in Pittsburgh unveiling his infrastructure plan, a once-in-a-generation investment in America, he called it. And Charlotte, this is very much your beat as New York bureau chief. What did you make of it? Well, the infrastructure plan includes an enormous number of new initiatives, which is not a surprise. There's a lot of stuff in there for clean energy, which is of particular interest to me. 
And then there is also um, quite a lot that has to do with boosting domestic manufacturing and thinking about supply chains and and bringing a greater share of manufacturing and supply chains home to the United States. So I wanted to talk to my colleague Vijay Vaithiswaran, who's in New York and is an expert both on supply chains and manufacturing. What's been new in the last few years is that a modern golden age of globalization has been somewhat in retreat. And it had nothing to do with Donald Trump. Even before the trade wars and the tariffs that he imposed that took a wrecking ball to the global trading order, we were already seeing global supply chains evolving, uh, regionalizing, for example, in, in Southeast Asia or with the North American automotive sector, bringing the ecosystem suppliers closer to home. And they were doing it for, broadly speaking, commercial reasons, faster innovation loops. You can be more responsive to your customers if your vendors are closer. So there is a commercial logic added to political logic that's changing the calculation at a number of companies in a number of industries. Not everything. Apple isn't coming home yet from its uh, base in China with Foxconn, but in many industries other than electronics, we're beginning to see this. And so how is that trend intersecting with a boom in American manufacturing? So there are separate things. Uh, I think they're related, though. Uh, this is one of the longer term trends that's fueling investments in the U.S. in both factories. We can look at Intel's uh, massive commitment to a new chip factory in the Southwest, as American Southwest, as an example, $20 billion commitment as part of this. But we're also seeing after a number of years in which U.S. manufacturing has underperformed, uh, has been uh, a lower share of, let's say, American GDP contribution of jobs and so on. We're actually seeing tremendous confidence in the manufacturing sector come back. They see a demand surge coming. Americans have saved a lot of money. A lot of the stuff that they're buying is not services, right? As service, you know, people don't go out during a pandemic that much, but we're buying a lot of stuff that you can drop on your foot. And so manufacturers are feeling pretty confident that there's some good times coming ahead. So we're actually seeing a short-term revival because of that demand factor. But the longer-term effect is a change in the attitudes in boardrooms about resilience, placing factories and bringing your vendors closer to your own home market, in this case, let's say the heartland of the U.S., actually providing some benefits that can be quantified in the balance sheet in terms of risk. So tell me then, how does Biden's infrastructure plan fit into this? How does it accelerate these trends? Do you see it as a significant acceleration if it gets through? It has uh, an invest in America, a make in America component that has always been part of Biden's philosophy. It also has uh, a green tinge, a strong climate component. And of course, it has the labor tinge. He's, he's talked often about good quality unionized American jobs. So all of those things come together uh, in this plan to make it much more attractive for American companies and foreign companies operating in America to invest in this country. Among the ways that it does this, there are tax incentives, for example, there are government procurement programs in the case of electric vehicles and so on. There's government explicit investment in things like charging stations, for example, for electric vehicles that will act as a stimulus to electric vehicle companies uh, making and selling cars in the U.S. So there are a number of incentives, uh, carrots, broadly speaking, that encourage companies to invest. And there are some sticks as well in terms of penalties. Uh, The way that he's proposing to pay for some of this are changes in the corporate tax code, some of which would raise the cost of producing overseas or making profits overseas by taxing them more. And so there are both carrots and sticks that the Biden team hopes will encourage business to invest more in the U.S.
John, let's start with that Biden infrastructure plan, the $2 trillion plan unveiled this week. There are some Buy American provisions within it. What else is in there? Well, the biggest chunk of it goes to old-fashioned transport infrastructure, right? Roads, bridges, railroads, airports. And that accounts for about $621 billion. There's also a big chunk, $174 billion, that goes to electric vehicles, and that is dispersed with tax credits to help consumers afford them, to encourage states to build out a robust charging infrastructure, which is currently a huge hurdle to adoption, and to boost domestic supply chains. And then you've got other things, modernizing the grid, you know, energy-efficient, retrofitting, a uh, chunk of money on, on research and development and care homes. It's about $2 trillion total over the next 10 years, and that's the first half of the plan. The second half, which will focus on what he calls social infrastructure, he'll unveil in about three weeks. Charlotte, with all these Buy American provisions, there's always a divide between economists on the one hand who point out that the American taxpayer gets less bang for the buck with Buy American provisions, and on the other hand, national security hawks and politicians who like the idea of using these big federal programs to reshore production. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that there's a little bit of simplification that goes on because there's a whole range of policy tools that one could theoretically use to spur investment in a way that promotes American competitiveness and then also makes the economy more secure and less vulnerable to threats from foreign suppliers. Those are not necessarily by American provisions. And one of the things that you've seen, I think it's pretty interesting if you look at Jake Sullivan, who's Biden's national security advisor, is before he entered the Biden White House, he wrote a lot about the intersection of national security and economic policy. And I think the reason why you see those two things intersecting in a new way is because of the nature of the really big challenges that America faces over the next decade. So the first one is a big strategic rivalry with China, which has historically been, it's an economic relationship, right, with China. And as industrial policy fell out of favor in America in the 1980s, China embraced it and ramped it up. And what you have now is a discontent with dependence on China in a few key supply chains, including the clean energy supply chain, And then there's also discontent over the loss of American jobs. So that's one big problem. The second big challenge in the coming decade is dealing with climate change. And again, China's positioning itself in key supply chains, including solar and batteries. America doesn't want to be left out and furthermore sees an opportunity in developing the next generation of clean tech, whether that's low carbon cement making or aviation. But to deal with those two big challenges, people like Jake Sullivan see industrial policy as key to doing that. Charlotte, politically, it's hugely appealing, the idea that America can both fight climate change and create lots of manufacturing jobs at home by doing a lot of the production of batteries and other technology that's required to power this green revolution, uh, doing that at home rather than importing it from China. In your view, is that a realistic aspiration or not? I think that there's a really big risk in being too protectionist. And that in the name of doing two worthy things, which is dealing with China and dealing with climate change, you reject globalization and free trade. I think that free trade and open markets actually do help you deal with both. And that there are some ways in which if you go too far, you undermine some of the things you claim to want to achieve, including clean energy that's less expensive. 
I'd also say that secure supply chains are not necessarily domestic supply chains. There's a big difference between having a secure supply chain and having an economy that's entirely self-reliant. So I think what's really interesting is the question of whether there's a role for government that isn't about protectionism and self-reliance, but rather you have a government policy that supports globalized supply chains that are both efficient and more secure, and that you can have policy that catalyzes investment, that supports research, you can sign trade deals with allies, but you don't need to go whole hog on protectionism, and that doing so actually brings big risks to achieving the goals that you claim to want to reach. Those listeners who haven't been reading The Economist since 1843 might not know that The Economist was founded to promote the cause of free trade. And the paper has often been on the sort of free trade fundamentalist end of this argument. In this week's cover leader, it's more nuanced than that, I think. It makes the point that in some industries, some particular technologies, supply is so concentrated in one country that can't necessarily be relied upon that it makes sense in those cases to think hard about diversifying supply. However, it also makes a broader point that you really don't want to go too far with this and that when the global supply chain goes wrong, like when a big boat gets stuck in the Suez Canal, it's very visible, but in fact the costs of it are fairly low. And what people don't see most of the time is things working as they're supposed to and working really well in a frictionless way. And so there's a sort of political problem when it comes to selling the benefits of these kind of globalized supply chains that you don't really notice it when it works really well, which it does most of the time. Okay, thanks both. We'll discuss how supply chains came to be so dependent on China in a moment. But first, the usual reminder, now is a great time to subscribe to The Economist. If you don't already, you'll find the best offer at economist.com slash uspod. In this week's issue, we look at why Europe has fallen behind in the vaccine race, argue for methane emissions targets, and show, in a striking graphic, how the collapse in lithium battery prices is ushering in the era of electric vehicles. Economist.com slash USPod is the link to subscribe. It's in the notes for this episode. April the 5th, 1971, you have this extraordinary moment in Nagoya, Japan, during the World Table Tennis Championships. That's the voice of Nicholas Griffin, the author of a book called Ping Pong Diplomacy. And he's describing events 50 years ago when table tennis brought about the very first opening in relations with China that later blossomed into the world's most important trading relationship. An American practice player, a guy called Glenn Cowan, who's sort of an American hippie, he's a teenager. He comes out of the practice hall. The shuttle bus isn't there, but there's another bus there. And there are men on that bus waving him on board. He gets on board and then he realizes to his shock that he's on board the Chinese national team bus. So when Cowan enters this bus, the person who approaches him and talks to him is this man called Zhuang Zedong. He's sort of the Pele of ping pong. And they start having this sort of awkward conversation. There's more of that, plus an update of where diplomacy with China has got to under Joe Biden, on Monday's edition of The Intelligence, The Economist's daily podcast. Charlotte, that tale of ping pong diplomacy 50 years ago is a reminder of just how recent this codependent relationship in trade between the US and China is. 
When Joe Biden came to power, there was some expectations that US-China relations might improve, that not having Donald Trump as president might lead to a different kind of relationship. That doesn't seem to have happened, does it? You've seen a real ramping up of tensions between the two countries, even since Biden took over. And there, in recent weeks, you've seen the trading of sanctions over Uyghurs. And then you have had a boycott of American and Western businesses that either explicitly critiqued China's treatment of Uyghurs or even because they stayed silent and haven't expressed active vocal support over uh, the treatment of Uyghurs. So it's quite a ramp up. There had been um, supposed to be regular meetings under Donald Trump's 2020 trade deal with China to discuss the progress and make sure that things were on track. Those meetings haven't occurred. They're not scheduled between the Biden administration and the Chinese government. And the new USTR, the new trade representative for Biden, has no plans to reopen those discussions. I guess one big difference between the Biden administration and the Trump administration when it comes to handling China is you see a lot more coordination with the Biden administration and allies. The Trump administration like to go it alone. The policies seem to swing around quite a lot. With Joe Biden, by contrast, we saw recently the US, Britain, the EU, Canada, all put in a coordinated set of sanctions against people in the Chinese Communist Party associated with the incarceration and forced re-education of Uyghurs in Xinjiang. So the way the policy has been carried out is quite different, and that's important. That's right. And those coordinated sanctions came shortly after a meeting with what I guess we're now calling the Quad, right, which is the US, Japan, Australia, and India. And that seems to have replaced, you remember at the end of the, at the, end of the Obama administration, they were negotiating the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was essentially a trade agreement between the U.S. and a bunch of Pacific Rim nations to not isolate China, but it, it, you know, put China on notice, deal with it economically. I think what we're seeing now is, the, is those coordinated sanctions associated with the horrors in Xinjiang that the U.S., the EU, and, and Canada are putting on, the defense cooperation on the other side. It's really another attempt to try to build alliances rather than to try to sort of get in a pointless pushing and shoving match. I think this broader breaking down, potentially, of the economic relationship points to why part of the reason why Biden and his team are interested in strategic supply chains. And I should add that President Trump was talking about this a lot and issued last year, declared a national emergency for domestic mining because he was so concerned about dependence on foreign suppliers of key minerals. And I do think, actually, to get nerdy on us, that mining and minerals are a pretty good example of what the limits might be of government intervention, even as Biden tries to ramp it up. Essentially, what you had is China for decades now recognizing the importance of certain strategic raw materials, beginning with rare earths, but then more recently investing in other key supply chains, including you know, not just lithium-ion battery cell manufacturing, but going back further upstream to the manufacturing of cathodes, and then before that to the processing of minerals used in those cathodes, and then before that, investing in the mines that produce those minerals. And in contrast, in 2008, there was a committee for the United States National Research Council that was looking at the Defense Department's strategy for key minerals and concluded the Defense Department appears to not to fully understand its need for specific materials or to have adequate information on their supply. So essentially, 
America had no plan whatsoever while China was making these strategic investments. And the result is that America depends on China for lots of key inputs in markets that are actually themselves quite small, taking rare earths as an example. It's, it's a very small industry, but they support other industries in defense and consumer electronics, in transportation that are collectively worth trillions of dollars. And you've seen governments try to become more interventionist in thinking about how to catalyze further investment, but it's actually really, really difficult to do so in short order. Charlotte, in that very nice piece that you wrote this week, you tell the story about a particular mine in California called Mountain Pass, which closed in 2015. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so Mountain Pass is this rare earths mine in Southern California, and it's been around for a very long time. The owner of that mine went bankrupt in 2015 in the face of intense competition from Chinese producers. But it's under new ownership, this mine, and it has both raised money through SPAC, but is also has received grants from the Department of Defense, interestingly, in the past year um, under the Trump administration, and is trying to bring more, not just mining, but processing of the minerals produced at the mine back to the United States. So right now, the mine that happens to be in California sends its entire output to one customer in China because America has no domestic processing. And the Department of Defense, which has been a big voice for supply chain nationalism in things like rare earths, but also in tech, has an interest in all of this because, as you say in the piece, some of the rare earths produced in this mine go into making fighter jets. Yeah, exactly. And so one of the interesting things is that it's not that unusual historically for the Department of Defense to think about raw materials that are crucial to national security narrowly defined. So, for instance, a fighter jet. And the question under the Biden administration is whether the definition of national security expands. Thanks both. We'll be back in a moment to talk more about the politics of all of this. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Before we dig more into the politics, Charlotte, you've been speaking to another of our colleagues this week. Yes, I've been talking to Samia Keynes, who covers trade and globalization for us, and I wanted to ask her about what impact the pandemic has had on the debate over globalization. When the pandemic first struck, I think there was this huge sense that something had gone wrong with globalization, with supply chains. Uh, there just wasn't enough personal protective equipment. And it seemed like trade was was to blame. There had been too much outsourcing or something. Now, actually, with the N95 masks, production is, is fairly regionalized. A lot of it is fairly close to the consumer. So there's actually already a lot of N95 mask production in America. The problem was that demand just went through the roof. So even if there had been no imports of, of PPE before the pandemic, there would have still have been a massive scramble. If you're a policymaker and you're looking at that particular product, the solution for the next pandemic is very clearly better stockpiling. Um, you want to work with companies to make sure that they can switch up their capacity, that, that kind of thing. But it's not clearly a, a failure of globalization. 
Is there any example? So PP is is one where people don't seem particularly concerned anymore. Is there any example where there has been a substantive shift or where you think there will be a substantive shift in the structure of the supply chain or in the way people think about supply chain vulnerability? So if we think about um, drugs, one of the really stunning things was the export restrictions that were put in place at the beginning of the pandemic to scramble for ingredients. And there were a few countries that that said, we are going to block the export of these very basic ingredients. And I've, you know, I've spoken to companies who say, yeah, that was, that was really scary. <laughs> um, and I know that one thing that's happening right now is that the buyers of the the ingredients are going to their suppliers and saying, look, you you have to be diversified. You can't just supply us from this one place. So I think the fragmentation of production, that could be a more lasting consequence of this, at least in some areas. So, John, let's talk about the politics. To me, at least, this feels like an unfair argument. I mean, you've got national security and seemingly more American jobs on one hand. And on the other side of the argument, you've got what's economically rational. That that just doesn't seem like a fair fight. Nope, that's never a fair fight. That's right. And Joe Biden, when he met with uh, Democrats and Republicans alike, I think last month about supply chain issues, he said it's just like the old days. There's sort of a broad agreement that we have to have an industrial policy that protects American workers and protects national security. And I think that impetus has been heightened by the supply shocks you've seen during the pandemic, right? As Tamea mentioned, N95 masks. And in that case, demand just surged. And whether any manufacturing would be able to meet it quickly is, is an open question. But you saw Caterpillar had to suspend operations last year due to supply chain problems. There was a shortage of, of lumber over the summer. Lumber prices are now high. There was concern over computer chips. So it was a really harsh reminder of, of just how essential it is to have some, probably some more control over supply chains than American companies have had in a while. I think the key thing is differentiating between temporary shocks and some longer term strategic questions. And uh, I think semiconductors fall into the latter category. You saw chip makers have a lot of trouble this year. IHS Market, which is a research firm and consultancy, thinks that there will be nearly 700,000 fewer cars produced in the first quarter of 2021 because of this chip shortage with tens of billions of dollars lopped off of car maker revenues this year. I think that there's a risk of a creep that happens across all supply chains where you think that, you know, oh, we need to be totally self-reliant in all these different areas. And I think in actuality, um, there are certain supply chains that are more worthy of attention than others. You got a bit of a preview with the infrastructure bill this week because the infrastructure uh, proposal includes having car makers with domestic supply chains from raw materials to parts. The Biden administration wants the Department of Commerce to monitor American industrial capacity and support the production of critical goods, invest lots of money, $50 billion in semiconductor manufacturing and research. This list goes on. And so I think there you see a bit more, in in my mind, kind of well-placed interest in key supply chains, but I also think quite an interventionist approach. You know, one thing that strikes me about the politics of both infrastructure and supply chains is that they're a great way for politicians to get projects in their home districts. And this was a time-honored way of getting big things passed, right? If you were a Republican who was, was skeptical of government spending, 
you know, maybe you were a bit less skeptical if there was a highway being built in your in your home district. This is the old Bud Schuster model, right? The Republican congressman from Pennsylvania who is great at getting things built back at home. And so I think there's no surprise that as we're seeing these concerns over infrastructure and supply chain emerge, you're also seeing a rethinking of the politics of earmarks, right? Maybe it's not such a bad thing for politicians to be able to send a little bit of pork back home to sort of lubricate the process, right? This is how things get done. So I expect you'll see more of that. You'll see resistance to earmarks start to lessen. And that can that has the potential to make legislating much, much easier to, to sort of ungridlock legislating. Yes, it's no coincidence that Cruz and Barrasso have rear earth projects that need financing within their states, right? And so that's part of why they are interested in support only of domestic projects versus um, integrated foreign supply chains. And I think you're absolutely right, John, that that, that is a focus. Uh, you know, I, I don't think it's always a good thing, though, because I think there are lots of projects that probably shouldn't get built that for political reasons might. So again, it's this kind of balancing act that is pretty delicate and it will be over the next year whether we see if the Biden administration kind of gets it right. All right, before I let you guys go, I have a quiz which is drawn from a previous era when Americans were nervous about economic dependence on foreign powers. There's a belief that American industry is in decline and a fear that economic power is shifting to Japan and West Germany. That was the verdict of The Economist in August 1980. We were reporting on a new industrial plan put forward by Jimmy Carter to try and save his re-election bid. The Carter White House admired the Japanese government's support for computer and chip technology. In a separate story, The Economist reported that Japan would start to subsidize production of a foodstuff famously absent from Japanese cooking. What was it? Um, Ketchup? Milk? Fazman's a bit closer. It was cheese. Mm. The Japanese government was going to start subsidizing cheese production in, in 1980. I'm not sure how that went. I suspect not well. The panic over Japan's rise peaked in 1989 when Mitsubishi bought New York's Rockefeller Center. Totemic American corporations like NBC, Time Warner, and Morgan Stanley would now have a Japanese landlord. But which country actually accounted for the biggest slice of foreign investment in the US in 1989? Hmm. Germany? Yeah, Britain. Fazman gets a point. It was the UK. Britain still vies with Japan for that number one spot. Foreign investment in the US fell by nearly half as the pandemic hit last year, allowing China to overtake the US as the top destination for foreign investment worldwide for the first time. Okay, that's it for this week. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thanks also to Nico Rofast and John Shields for producing the show. Don't forget that the writer and director and brilliant student of American politics, Aaron Sorkin, is Anne McElvoy's guest on The Economist Asks podcast this week. If you want to get in touch, we'd love to hear from you. The address is radio at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe. Stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week.